Father, we want to give you thanks for your word. Uh, it is truth. It is you speaking to us and uh, bringing to us everything from you that we need. And we pray this morning that you would uh, bring uh, your word with life to us, that we would understand that you would change us and bless us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working our way through Mark, as you know. And Mark is, is, is one of those things, if you ever watch a... Just say you're one of those evil people who binge watches a TV on a TV series, and you notice that at the end of every episode, there's always something that's not yet finished, and you've got to go on. So you're kind of tempted to watch the next one. You know what I mean? They might resolve some problems, but there's some problems not resolved, and things like that. Mark's a bit like that when he's preaching. Is that he's kind of got theme? You know what I'm saying, don't you? Yeah, right. No one wants to admit to binge watching anything, but. Um, there's these themes that overlap and they never end and it keeps going around and everything's linked to everything. And it's really, really cool, actually. And, um, well, you'd think there must be a lot of depth in it because he's recording the life of Jesus, who was and is and is to come and is everlasting. And Jesus is kind of the glue that holds all of history together. So he is the meaning of everything. And, and through Mark, you get all these points. Now... The start of Mark chapter 12, if you want to listen to a sermon on that, you've got to listen to Rob. He's preaching on that today down at Deer and Bandy. But um, what, uh, what I'm doing is the last, from chapter 12, verse 18 onwards. This is Jesus teaching. Remember what we did last week? He tipped over the tables in the temple. He, he's reinstating a new temple, which is himself. And uh, through him, we can come to God purely and in prayer. And, and the bit we're missing, actually, uh, Jesus tells a parable of some tenants who look after a farm and the, and the owner of the farm's away. And then they, they start to own the farm for themselves and they're not paying the money to the owner. And so he sends his messengers and they beat, beat up the messengers and finally he sends his son. And... Uh, they think, if we kill this son, we can take over the farm for ourselves. It's a good plan. It's a stupid plan. It's as dumb as people who are created by God sinning against the God who created them and thinking they can take over the world for themselves. That's a dumb plan when he's the creator of all, right? Do you agree? Yeah, silly. Silly idea. Okay. And then at, uh, Jesus, uh, he... Um, he speaks of Jesus, sorry, God, he tells in the story, he says, they've rejected the cornerstone. They've rejected him. And those who reject him, actually, those, those ones will be in great trouble, which will come to that. Then Jesus tells the story, sorry, then someone brings and says, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And Jesus uh, says, whose image is on this coin? You know that story. Give to Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Okay, that's where our story starts at verse 18 today. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now understand this. The Sadducees didn't believe in anything after death. They were people who believed, they, they, they believed what was in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they believed there was no resurrection in that. So they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a, brother, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. They're quoting from Deuteronomy 25. Uh, there's a little bit more context in Deuteronomy 25, if the brothers are still living together, actually. Uh, but what they're, they're saying is, like, I put it in context, sorry, uh, Bruce is married to Sue, and Bruce died, and then Sue's in dire straits, so Bruce's brother would have to marry Sue to look after her. Don't give us that look. But, but now they tell this story. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. The same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife would she be since the seven were married to her? That's those people who say, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here and tell an impossible sort of scenario, but that's what they're like. You know those people. They take it to the nth degree. And um, who's going to be married in heaven? They're asking about the resurrection that they don't believe in. They're trying to find a fault with what Jesus is saying. And Jesus replied, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So at the resurrection, actually, there will not be uh, husbands and wives and they won't be marrying because there won't be children being born again. Uh, being born, not again, but born at all. And why is that? Because actually we will have one love who will be Jesus. And he will be our everything. You understand? And we will be children of God. And, and we won't need that. How that works, we don't fully know. But we do know this. Marriage in a human sense is fulfilled in the ultimate sense of the marriage of Jesus to his bride, which is the church, which is God's people. So he's saying, firstly, you don't get it. Secondly, then he quotes from Exodus 3, 6. Why is that important? Because these blokes only believe in the first five books of the Bible and Exodus is the second one. Right. And he says this. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush? How God said, I am the God, this is what God said to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, why does this, in what way does that passage, that little bit I just read there, refer to the resurrection? God just says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says there, see, the resurrection's there. Well, what God is saying, what, what, when God says that, he's actually promising salvation and deliverance to his people. And he's saying, did I call Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and deliver them and then they just died? And that's the end of the story? Wow, thank you. Abraham, all these promises come to this very old man who ends up about 100 years old with a son. He hasn't got much time to kick the footy with him really because he's, he's already old and decrepit. And then he dies and that's the end of the story. Yay. Wow, that's good. Thanks God for that. No, what's assumed the whole way along is God is bringing resurrection. He is setting up something for all his people and death is not the end. And he's saying, you don't get the scriptures at all, you people. You, you haven't got it. The teaching is clear. 
It's also amazing when you think of that little line, which I would have read a thousand times and never got the resurrection out of it. When Jesus, who understands scripture, speaks it, it has endless depths, endless riches. Uh, Also, when Jesus was taken up to heaven and he gave us the Holy Spirit, we can understand scripture too. Isn't that cool? We can understand, which is one of the coolest things. If you see someone preach sometimes, and when they're preaching, you kind of go, wow, that's incredible. How did they get that out of that? But I can see it's there. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit's still using Scripture to speak to people. And he brings, uh, not just out of one person. One person doesn't get it all, but all people get God's incredible truth from his Scripture. Okay, that's story one. Um. Now, what are we up to? Story two. There's number today. I'm sorry if I'm going. I'm going to speak fast. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, right? So he's coming in at the end and he just heard them arguing about the resurrection. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said to Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, sorry, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So Jesus quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6. God is the one and unique God who shown grace and favour and covenant love to Israel. Therefore, because of his love, you should love him with an absolute devotion. With all your heart. All, use this word all. Gee, it's a painful word if you want to see how well you're doing in your Christian life. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. These alls show that the command is a life totally given to God. Every aspect of their lives is about loving God. For his glory. Because of who he is. We're to find all our pleasure in him. We're to strive after him with everything. And you can see that this is not just a legal command. You know how the Pharisees love to take a command like, here's, obey the Sabbath. This is what it means. It means this and this and this. And you can't take more than 10 steps on a Saturday and all that sort of junk. Imagine if you tried to do that with love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. You would be writing down sub-laws forever, wouldn't you? What does it entail? Every time you breathe is to the glory of God. And every time you comb your hair, if you've got hair, it's to the glory. And every time you, you do, you, absolutely, you just never get to the bottom of it. It's not just a legal command. This is saying, love the Lord your God. Do you understand? And more than any other command... If we actually think on this, two things will simultaneously happen, right? Number one, you'll go, this is a good and right command. We know that's right, don't we? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You know that's right? Number two, you'll go, I have absolutely failed that in basically every minute of my life. Is that true? Yep. Anyone want to put up their hand and say they love God perfectly? So you kind of... Firstly, you know, this is a good law and completely right. And secondly, and I'm condemned by it. 
Because we always face with people who come to us and they say, oh, well, why do you talk about sin all the time? I don't sin. It's like, right, so you obey that command? Because <laughs> what they're thinking is, well, I've never killed anybody or raped anybody, but uh, you know, uh, that's what they see God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and strength. There's only been one person who's obeyed that. Jesus. True? He is the only one who loved the Lord his God with all... So what are we to do with this impossibility and this failure? Well, I just want to read a little bit from 1 John where he says, This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. I find that every time I read the word propitiation, I have to tell you what it means and I'm going to do it again because you you all know propitiation, don't you? Thanks, Jellera, for this example. It is like this. God looks at Jellera and sees that she has sinned. She's broken that commandment. And actually anybody who sins is under the righteous anger of God. There's no way around that. So what is happening is the holy God is coming at Jellera with all his wrath. And by the way, this is all of us. But with all his anger because of her sin, and it's right that he does that, and it is coming, and it will totally destroy her. And then as that anger is coming, Jesus steps in the path of that on the cross and takes the full wrath of God once and for all for her, and what she receives is the righteousness of Christ. That's propitiation. It's a good word, isn't it? It's strong. It's a strong word. It's, uh, it is the depth of God's love for us. So this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. This is love. Where does it come from? It comes from God. He goes on in 1 John 4 to say, we love because he first loved us. How did he love? By sending his son as a propitiation for our sins. Because he loved us, then we have a love supply which is not our own. It's come to us from him, a righteousness from God, which causes us to be able to love. And we can actually love God. And we can love one another. Isn't that cool? God gives us what we need. Otherwise, reality is we're all in big trouble because none of us have obeyed this command. Okay, so that's the first commandment uh, Jesus says. The second is like this, love your neighbour as yourself. There's no greater commands than these. Okay, who's loved their neighbours themselves? <laughs> Gee, we failed that one too. And uh, interestingly enough, he's quoting Leviticus 19. And, and in that, it actually says, in the people of Israel, love your neighbour as yourself. So that's good for us. We can just love the people in the church. We don't have to love anyone outside. That's cool, eh? Uh, no, no, that's because Jesus asked this question, wasn't he? Uh, who is my neighbour? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which includes basically everybody, including a stinking Samaritan who's, uh, you know, no one likes. Um, in other words, uh, everybody. And Jesus even says, love your enemies, doesn't he? Just to make it completely impossible again. So Jesus says these two commands. He's been asked by the teacher of the law... What's the greatest commandment? And he's, he's laid out this too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well said, teacher, the man replied. That's pretty cool. And a man saying to Jesus, the son of God, yeah, you got it right. But that's, that's good. 
You are right in saying that God is, the one, is one and there's no, no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. This bloke actually has got some understanding. What he's saying, he's actually bringing together uh, some, some, some bits of the Old Testament, uh, like 1 Samuel 15 Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And then in Hosea 6, 6, he says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, this, you can come along to church and say, look at me, I'm a good person. Put lots of money in the offering, then you'll know you're even a really better person, Right? You can sacrifice. I've given up so much for God. Yeah. And your heart can be a mess. It can, be, it can have no love whatsoever for God. Do you understand? You're religious. Who's Jesus talking to? A whole lot of religious people. We get In this one chapter, he's talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and also the uh, temple guard. He speaks to all of them. They all question him. Uh, trying to catch him out. And what he's saying, and what we found last week, is they were just an outer shell that looked great, but inside they were far from God. You understand that? They thought that they could obey God's commands and get his tick of approval by being really good people. And the reality is, when it comes to that law, we fall so far short. But this man, he actually got something. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. You've got these central things right. And Jesus is encouraging him, but he's also encouraging him to think some more on this. Because if you were told you're not far from the kingdom of God, you'd want to ask, so what's the bit I need? Yeah, well, that's what I'd be asking. And what's he, what's he missing? Well, faith in Jesus. As Jesus had said the whole way through, where is your faith? You have little faith. You need faith. What do you need faith in? Jesus, the Son of God. When you have faith in him, then you have everything. But he wasn't having a go at him here. He was saying, you're close. You just need this one more bit. Do you understand? You can trust in Jesus and get the gift of perfect righteousness. But it is not achieved. It is received. Does that make sense? Remember what we said when Jesus, uh, when the, about little children? He said you need to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Right. We got told a story the other day about that from Clyde and Linda. They said, you were right when you were preaching. And I thought, that's great. Uh, Annabelle came round and they gave Annabelle some Lego. Is that right? That's true. And they said, do you know what she did? She just took it and said thanks and then enjoyed it. She received it like a child. That's what a child does. You give them a lolly, they don't go, I'll pay you back for that one day. I really want to make that up for you. Do they? They just take it and they enjoy it, right? To receive the kingdom of God like a child is to do that. He gives us a gift and we go, thank you. But you see, the religious heart will say, yeah, but I earned that and I've been pretty good. 
and I'll try and make it up for you. How do you make up when our sins are a mountain before God, right, and, and he has taken them away? How do you make that up? By a few good actions? No. You receive the gift. And unless you receive that gift, you actually never have that gift. But when you receive the gift of perfect righteousness that you can never do, you've got it. So once again, Jesus answers all these questions wisely. That's about the fourth or fifth one in a row where people have said, we'll catch him here, we'll catch him there. And then it says, and from then on, they dared not to ask him any more questions. They realised they couldn't trip him up, so instead they made plans to kill him. Yeah, wise, eh? Just like the story of the tenants in the vineyard who killed the son. So while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he then be his son? Okay. That might sound complex. But David in one of the Psalms said, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Lord over me, uh, you are the ruler of everything, sit at, my, sit at my right hand until I put an enemy. He's saying, and that's the son of David. How can the son of David be the Lord of David? And there's an answer to that. Jesus is in the line of David and he was David's Lord. Jesus was the Lord of David a thousand years before Jesus was born. Um. He always was the Lord. Jesus was always the Son of God, became flesh. Now, that, that's, a, that's actually a complex thought, but you're saying Jesus was alive forever. The large crowd listened to him with delight. Right? So when I read that bit, most of you and me went, huh, what's he saying here? And those crowd were getting it. No, they loved his teaching. Because if you get a hint, if you are hearing someone teach and you get a hint that this is the Son of God, the Saviour, the Messiah, you'd be pretty excited too, I'd say, wouldn't you? They're receiving his word like a child. That's what they're doing. They love the teaching. But you can see, and it's what I'm going to talk about in the end, where we're heading. Jesus' teaching, as I've said before, you know, it says... Out of his mouth is a sword. Jesus' teaching is like a sword. And you've got a roast on your cutting block and you've got a very sharp, uh, one of those cleavers and you bring it down, right, on that bit of uh, meat and it cuts it clean in two. Right? Half it's on one side and half it's on the other. There's nothing left in the middle. Right? That's what a sharp blade will do. That's what the Word of God does. When the Word of God comes, it divides people. You've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all by one, who's actually getting somewhere, one teacher of the law, who us hate Jesus. And then you've got the other people who are listening and they delight in what he's saying. That's what the Word of God does. I know we, sometimes we hate that, because we want to bring a word that will make everybody love us and everybody happy. We want to be peacemakers, don't we? Anybody want to be a peacemaker? Anybody want everyone to accept them and love them? 
The word of God doesn't do that. It divides people. That's just the reality of it. Okay, as he taught, we're up to verse 38. Hopefully I can bring all this together in a minute. So if not, well, you've heard lots of good random stories. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around with flowing robes uh, and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, and for a show make lengthy prayers. How do you, they rip off poor people while they're praying in, in a flowery way. These men will be punished most severely. Ouch. Watch out for those who are showy religious people. The ones we've been talking about all along. They, you know why they showy. You know, if they ever give anything or do anything for anyone, they've got to let people know, don't they? Because it's all about them, you see. Their display is before everyone. And yet behind the scenes, they're ripping people off. How are they ripping people off? Well, in one sense, merely by what they receive by holding on to it and not sharing it with others, they're actually ripping people off who are in need. You understand that? You can rip people off by simply not giving where you should. Because who owns the dollars anyway? God does. Okay, they, they desire honour and respect. They want everybody to think that they are good people. Have a look at me. They want the best of everything. And for everyone to know that they've got the best of everything. They ache after the glory of men. They want to be... They want to know that people are impressed by them. That they're they're glorious in a worldly sense. You know these people. You know that that's you a lot of the time too, don't you? It's me. Yeah. But you see, every time you you ache after that honour and glory, instead of giving it to God, well, you actually are falling into selfish sin. These people want to show their sacrifice, but they don't truly want to love. Even their action, yeah, as I said, spending money uh, for themselves is rightly should be shared with others. Then Jesus sat down. This is the last part of our story, and so I'm not going to talk forever today. He sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury, Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Can you see the contrast of this woman and the flowing garments and the loud prayers and the ripping off of widows? Why has she got not enough? Because she's not cared for by those who should care for her. Right? 
Now, here is this woman who is able to give her last cents because of what? Because she has faith. She knows who's looking after her. God is. Do you understand? Say she's poor, but she's rich. Because when you live knowing that God is the one who looks after you, you have everything you need. She was showing, not to anybody else, not as a show, that she trusted in God. She's an example of someone who loves the Lord, isn't she? We might argue straight away and say, yeah, but I mean, the other money was worth a lot more than her little amount of money, right? And it could be used for greater good. You know what? In the end, all that money got spent. It's not sitting there in that pot anymore. That's what happens to all money. It all gets spent. It all disappears. But at the end, her offering was of great weight, of great glory, of great eternal value because that woman you will meet in heaven. Yeah, pretty important little offering, that one, hey? You get what I'm saying? Man looks at the outward appearance, appearance, glorious men, flowing robes, praying out loud. God looks at the heart. Poor woman that everybody else doesn't even notice who has lives a life of love and faith and hope. This woman was storing up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Do you get what I'm saying? This woman was dying to herself, not living for herself. That's the gospel call, to die to yourself. She, this woman actually is the fulfilment of everything we've read. She is, she is the one who fulfills all the teaching we've done now. And she's an insignificant woman who doesn't even get her name. Isn't that interesting? Right. This chapter is about three types of people. There's one type of people which is not mentioned, but there's three types of people. Those who have faith. Those who are close to understanding. They're getting it. And those who absolutely reject Jesus. It's all the people in the temple. The fourth group of people is the sinners. They don't come to the temple. (laughs) Jesus has been ministering to them for, for the last three years, by the way when he's been out and about. And Jesus brings to these three groups of people a holy sword. It's a drafting race. Do you, do you remember... Dra- uh, anybody... How many of you drafted sheep? No? But yeah, yeah some of you. Right, and, and so you've got some people driving through the race and at the end you've got a door. So you've got the race here and the door swings backwards and forwards. Some really smart ones even have three ways, but... But and, and when, as the sheep's coming, you're checking the tag for it's, uh, maybe it's a, 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 a ewe or a weather, or, and you swing it across and one goes one way and one goes the other way. And, um, and uh, just occasionally, you know, the farmer's a bit slow and the, and the ewe goes bang into the end of the thing, but we won't talk about that. That never happens with God's drafting race. <laughs> no one's left in the middle. But everybody ends up one side or the other. Okay. That's what, God, that's what Jesus is doing with his teaching. Here is a group of people in the temple. He's drafting them off. And the wisdom he brings to do that drafting is powerful wisdom from the Holy Spirit. It is incredible teaching. 
God's, God's word, his scripture is awesome. It is. Like, don't get enough of it. Keep, keep wanting more of it. Keep learning it. But you also know that his truth is always divisive. Truth actually hurts, doesn't it? Because if you submit to it, you have to give up on yourself again and again. That's part of, that's part of the life of, of truth. But hear this. Okay. Peter says, I want to go back to that stone that the builders rejected. He says, this stone, he says, behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, in, in, in God's capital, in the, in the temple, the cornerstone, which is chosen and precious. That's Jesus. The cornerstone, remember, was the big block they built at the very corner of the building and it had to be more perfect than any other stone because what they did was they drew their lines and they got their angles and they didn't have laser levels in those days but they got their levels from this one stone. It had to be perfectly square because if it was a little bit out on one angle and then they built the temple on it, by the time they got to the top, she thought it's a house of cards. Okay, Jesus is the foundation cornerstone and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, that the, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This stone becomes a stumbling block and a rock of offence. Now, I don't know, it's a good picture, isn't it? A great big stone and then you fall over it. You, you don't stub your toe and you skin your knee and you're... You're in big trouble. The same stone which brings salvation, which is Christ, is also the same stumbling block that everybody hates. Can you see that division that comes? Because at the end of the day, there's not four groups of people, there's only two. There's those who believe and there's those who don't. And there's no one left in the middle. Okay. And those who stumble over the cornerstone will be punished most severely. They've always lived by their pride, their self-ability, their selfishness, their honour, their glory, their own lordship over God, instead of receiving the truth like a child. And they will be judged. He will return to judge and punish them. Know this for sure. There is one judge. It's Jesus Christ. And history, he is drafting. He's drafting people off. And in the end, he will be glorified for his mercy and his grace. Forever, in, in, in the Revelation, we have praise the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Praise him for his love and grace. Yep. Also, you've got another sort of song in the Revelation. Praise him for his judgments. They are righteous and true. He will be praised forever, not just for his grace. He will be praised for his righteous judgments. Do you understand that? Heaven and hell proclaim the glory of God. Both of them, in different ways. Some will be believed, some will believe, sorry, and be saved, and some will refuse to believe. They won't receive the gift. There'll be judgment for those ones. But ultimately, what the preaching of Christ does is it puts a fork in the road. 
You understand? When you preach Christ in truth and what's happened on the cross, you put a fork in the road. I know that we get upset and it feels like a failure when someone rejects the message. But we have to admit that throughout Scripture, that's what happens. Some reject and some receive. What we don't want to be is those people who change the message so that those who don't accept it kind of sound like they could be in. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't want to dumb down the message. Don't make an excuse for unbelief. But we do know this. There will be, as with those Sadducees, there will be a resurrection. A resurrection to eternal life for all who trust in him. And all who are raised to eternal life with him will glorify him forever. They will glorify him for heaven, for his grace and mercy, and they will glorify him for hell, for his righteous judgments. If uh, there's anything we want to be, we want to be in that group that glorifies God forever. True? In the meantime, we preach his truth. We proclaim it, his gospel, his grace and his mercy And we know that as we bring his teaching, his good purposes are worked out in this world. I'm going to pray. Father, this has been for us a confronting message because in it we've seen our own failures, our own sins, our own helplessness. We've also heard of your great act of propitiation where you took, uh, where Jesus took your wrath that we deserved and gave us his righteousness. I pray that hearing this truth, we would be those who spend our lives in your power glorifying you, living for you. I pray that you would teach us to put aside our own selfishness, our own honour, our own glory, the treasures on earth, that we might receive these treasures of heaven that are everything for now and forever. And I pray that you would make us men and women and children whose whole lives are given to loving you. And Father, those who trust you, when we fail to love as we should, knowing that you have forgiven all our sins and given us your perfect righteousness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.